dime Need a new gal She won't mind Tell me how long Do I have to wait Can I get you now Said must I hesitate Eagle on the dark says God we trust You say you want a man You want to see that dark first Tell me Tell me how long do I have to wait? Can I get denied, Lord, must I hesitate? Say, can I get 
Hello and welcome again to the Strange Brew podcast. My name's Jason Barnard and that was Hot Tuna and Hesitation Blues with the unmistakable sound of Yorma Corkinen. And as well as talking about Hot Tuna here today, Yorma will be covering his time in Jefferson Airplane, his life and solo career. And this is just a wonderful interview and privilege. So let's hear my chat with Yorma. Hey Yama, it's Jason here. Great to see you. <laughs> Fantastic. Extra special to see the guitar in action as well. Well, I can I can see you, can hear you. Everything seems to be working great. Let's not jinx it. <laughs> I was really interested to speak to you because um, looking at your website, looking at YouTube channel and social media is that you um, you remain hugely active, and that included over the pandemic period. Sure, yeah. Is that something that you feel is important to you to kind of stay active and creative? Sure. Well, there, I think there's a lot of factors in play. I mean, first of all, you know, every now and then some guy is going to ask me, do you ever think about retiring? And my answer is always, why? So I can spend more time playing the guitar. I mean, I'm really lucky because I can still do it pretty well. Uh, it's something I've always loved to do. Uh, it's it's not totally who I am, but it certainly is a huge part of it. And it's just something that needs to be done. Coupled with that, uh, you know, with our ranch thing, you know, when, when the pandemic shut us down over here in the States, you know, we're just sitting around, you know, I... You can see I'm in my and I'm I'm in our library here. You can see the library behind me, and we have all the stuff. You know, we have the little production theater and all that kind of stuff. And we're sitting around, we're looking at this stuff, and I'm going, you know, we have access to the outside world, and even though we can't have people come in, we can do this. And so, and so we just started to do it. I've got a great production team. None of us had anything to do except that. So, so everybody just got on board, and and it became really hugely important to us too because. One of the things I think that happens with me, you know, we all live a lot of different lives. I've got a teenage daughter that's a senior in high school. So with her and her friends, I'm just Izzy's dad, you know, <laughs> but and that's OK. But at the end of the day, it's it's really not enough too. I still need to be, you know, who I am. And so we're very fortunate because we had the facilities and the possibilities to stay active throughout the pandemic. And we were able to do that. The other thing was important to us, too is that we keep it with the concerts, you know, is that we keep them free, you know, because as soon as that started happening, people come out of the woodwork, oh, you should monetize it, do it with us, blah, blah, blah. And I went, no, we're not going to do that. You know, well, you know, we have a little store, so we went up selling stuff that allowed me to pay for our staff, but but it wasn't about the money. We were able to do it, and I was able to do it, and that was just the deal. And one of the great threads of your career is Hot Tuna, and um, you've got lots of dates coming up, um, electric and acoustic. Sure. We just, uh, Jack and I and Justin Whip, who's our, our, our been our drummer for the last decade or so, uh, we just we just uh, finished a, uh, a three-week tour with Little Feet, opening for Little Feet, and you know, it's a really interesting thing. You know the deal in the music business. And no matter who you are, if you're an opening act, everybody hates you because you're just there as walk-in music. But for some reason, the the Little Feet audience, for some reason, even the walk-in audience listened to us. And one of the things we wanted to do also on this tour, and I'll get to the up, some of our updated stuff in a sec, was that Little Feet's a nine-piece band now. They have a three-piece horn section. I mean, it's a fabulous band. And I just, I got to thinking about it and thought it just doesn't make sense 
for us to do the loud trio thing in this context. And so what we did was um, Jack did play an electric bass, but I played I played an acoustic guitar standing up, which I never do. But you know, when you're playing with a drummer, you got to stand up. Uh, and Justin playing is playing a light kit of drums, and so we did that. And just really had a great time. We wound up, we wound up cutting the horn section in on some of our stuff and playing like the New Orleans-themed stuff. And just had a great time. Coming up, of course, uh, we, have, uh, we have a bunch of electric dates coming up. And one of the things, I, I should have all these dates under my nose, but I don't. But one of these dates is kind of an important one for us is the Capitol Theater in, in uh, Port Chester, New York. And on that... We're cutting Steve Bernstein, who's the, the leader of the, of the Ramble uh, horn section, uh, Levon's old horn section, and they were also the horn section on the Little Feet tour, because we did a bunch of stuff where we just cut him in playing trumpet, and he's going to do that show with us, and I'm going to I'm going to score a bunch of things. So any of the hot tuna stuff that we did that were like production numbers where I play lead a lot of lead guitar stuff, me and the guys will hold down the fort, and Steve will be me only with the trumpet. One of the things I really appreciated from you was your uh, autobiography from uh, about four years ago now, being okay. been so long, my, my life and music. And rather than dishing the dirt as such, actually, it was much more insightful view of the creative right. process and how the dynamics in a band are rather than sort of the personal stuff. I assume that was a conscious sure. uh, thing to do. Absolutely. I, you know, everybody's got stories. I mean, we joke about the fact that, uh, you know, back when we were young, uh, we might have had a lot to do, you know, with changing rock and roll, but we did not invent sex, drugs, or rock and roll. Anyway, everybody's got those stories. And, you know, back about, I don't know, maybe 15 or 20 years ago, uh, I was approached to do that project. And they got, and the company, who shall be nameless, uh, assigned basically a ghostwriter to write it with me. And I realized all they wanted were those stories. I'm just not interested in that stuff, you know. So it just makes more sense on a human level. To you know, not focus on stuff. I'm mean, everybody. Everybody has foibles and war stories, but that's not really the interesting stuff. And the thread for your music runs way back uh, over sixty years now, and and yeah. you've been playing songs like Hesitation Blues way before Airplane, and that then then come to the fore in Hot sure. Tuna. Yeah. So you just you know you can make plans, but you can't plan the outcome. You know, I I started Jack and I started. We've been playing together since 1958, and back in those days we had. We didn't even have a garage band because my grandfather's car was in the garage. We had a living room band. But but we did get gigs and we played. But basically we were doing, you know, Buddy Holly stuff, you know, just stuff that was happening at the time. Anyway, so when I, in Antioch College in the in the uh, the spring quarter of 1960, I met this guy, Ian Buchanan, who was sort of like a generation plus ahead of me. He came from New York. He was one of Dave Van Ronk's compatriots. And by that time, he was already an excellent player. Now, uh, so his, uh, his muse was Snooks Eaglin, uh, but, but a lot of that stuff was over my head at the time. But he was a friend of Reverend Davis's. So he started teaching me some of the Reverend Davis stuff. And it's just like, for some reason, it just resonated with me. So anyway, so I played, played acoustic guitar exclusively until I got into the airplane. When I got into the airplane, even though I had owned an electric guitar when I was a kid, I didn't really play it. All this stuff was learning on the sort of learning on the job. And the good news for me getting that job really was that we were all kind of in the same boat except for Jack. Jack had, and Jack and Spencer had actually professional musical experience. The rest of us were just like folkies. So we got a chance to kind of learn on the job and 
and be eccentric. And, and a lot of lucky things happen to us, as you know. But, but musically, I think as a result of some of our ineptitude, it, as we learned to play, it became interesting. It was really interesting seeing the development of the group ever since the, the debut LP, Jefferson Airplane, takes off and, and songs like Blues from an Airplane, where you can really see that that folk side coming through and then you've got the very nascent electric stuff starting to come in but not fully there yet sure so yeah takes off is 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 really a folk rock album you know and and again for me looking back at it i can see kind of where i would wind up ultimately but at that time i was still mostly playing with my fingers you know i I play with a flat pick when i have to i'm not as glib with it as i used to be but in any case so, so yeah, it was a folk rock album, and when we got, when Grace got in the band, it, the landscape changed, you know. Signe was a great singer, and she was a great participant in that first era of the band, but, but Grace was really something special. And again, Grace also, you know, you know, it's kind of funny that the two songs that got the airplane into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame were not our songs. She brought them from Great Society. But she, but what she really brought to the band was like just a, a much more eccentric way of looking at things. You know, Eric Satie was her muse. I mean, not that we sound like Eric Satie, but she did lots of weird stuff that if you were really to get under the skin, you could kind of track it down to that. You can really see that new influence of Grace on songs like She Has Funny Cars, which you co-wrote, and, and she's there on, on backing vocals. And sure. I guess it's that magic of bringing everyone together that created something special, which really started to come in with Surrealistic Pillow. Sure. 
So, sir, you know, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you, you know, the whole is always greater than the sum of the parts with it when it's the right kind of band. And a lot of really interesting stuff happened with us. That Not only did we get Grace in the band, but when we recorded that album, we had Dave Hassinger as an engineer. He'd just done the Rolling Stones and a bunch of those guys. And Rick Gerard as a producer. We only worked with him that one time. But the fact remains is that he was a, a professional. Again, it was only our second time in the studio, even though we thought we knew everything. We didn't know a whole lot. And in the Surrealistic Pillow days, that's a four-track recording before Dolby. So you you had to nail your parts. You could you could only do like maybe one overdub, and then you were done. So so there was a lot. I mean, looking back at it now, I go, man, that's a lot of pressure because now you cut and paste stuff, and you can franken solo till the cows come home. But back in those days, you know, you kind of had to nail it pretty much. And again, it was a perfect storm. On that record, Jerry Garcia is listed as a spiritual advisor or something like that. You know, Jerry had played in, I'd known Jerry for a long time by then, and he'd played in in jug bands, bluegrass bands, and ultimately, of course, the Grateful Dead, as we know. So he he had the dynamic of band playing down, which none of us really did at that time. And so he was not a, people go, well, he produced it. No, Rick Gerard produced that record, but he helped with the arrangements. He helped make things much more cohesive. Interesting, considering of where the Grateful Dead went, you know, with their extremely, you know, limitless boundaries and stuff like that. But he was largely responsible for the fact that we basically came up with an album full of like three and a half minute songs. And one of the special moments on the album is uh, Embryonic Journey. And I've read that that was the first song you wrote. Is that correct? Yes, I wrote that. And I'm trying to think that probably 60, late 62, or early 63. And Rick Gerard, again, you know, when... We were. I was sitting out in the uh, in the uh, in the lobby of the uh, RCA Recording Studios, which back in those days was the corner of Sunset and Ivor in uh, in Los Angeles, and just sitting and playing stuff that I played on the acoustic guitar. One of the things I played was that song, and and Rick was walking from the room, and he went, "You need to record that song." And I was I was a no, nah, you don't need to record that song. That's just a little folky thing, and it doesn't fit on a rock and roll album. Anyway, that's probably a first or second take. And again, since it's so early in the in the techno world back then, it's drenched in room echo. That's a real room echo in it. That's not a gadget. And of course, I wound up being very grateful to Rick. Thank you, Rick, wherever you are, for insisting that we do that.
after Bathing at Baxter's featured uh, another of your songs, The Last Wall of the Castle, and that was one of the first times you actually had lyrics. Is that right? Sure. So one of the one, a lot of great things happened with the airplane. Now, you know, a couple of years ago, I'm, I remember, you know, Grayson and I stay in touch. With, I call her every now and then. And by the way, BTW, she never lets us down. She's just as verbally inappropriate as she ever was. But anyway... I called up to just tell her what an honor it was to play with her back then, you know, looking back on it. Cause we, you know, we never cut each other a break back in the band, but I mean, she was magical anyway. So we had all these great singers and songwriters in the band, but they always encouraged any of us, in this case, me who wrote anything to write lyrics. And so I gave it a shot and, 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 you know, many bands fight about who's going to get songs on the album. If any of us came up with something, we got it on the album. You weren't studio musicians, but in a way that gave you the freedom, given that you were still experimenting and, and looking at the boundaries of right. things that you were playing. So the, the San Francisco, the answer to you, absolutely. You know, before I started yakking, absolutely. What you just said, absolutely. So the San Francisco scene was really interesting because I just saw the uh, the, the documentary, uh, I think it's called The Laurel Canyon, A Place and Times, a two-piece documentary on Epic. It's a minor streaming thing. Really great. All these L.A. people, Crosby, uh, Jackson Brown, Neil Young, I mean, all these, uh, Stephen Stills, all those people from that earlier, Zappa, et cetera, et cetera. L.A. Was a, was, a, was a professional studio town. And all these guys, even who are kind of like occasionally or moving in the same orbit, were really professional cats. A lot of them read, a lot of them did all that kind of stuff. San Francisco, it was chaotic in a lot of ways. And in some respect, in some ways, we had difficulty getting respect from the from the more professional people from L.A., Chicago, New York, et cetera, et cetera, because we weren't professional. So to finally get to your point, yeah, we came up with stuff that was eccentric because we just didn't know any better. And one of the things I tell my students when we talk about this, if we're doing a writing class, I go, look, you know, to reach for the stars when you're young may or may not be a good thing. You know, if you have if something is tweaking your your creative uh your bone, you got to jump on it immediately. And it doesn't matter how much you know or don't know. It could be magical. Why not? Who knows? But but I've gotten to the point now where I realized that I would never write uh, a song like, like let's say, New More, new Song for the Morning that's on uh, Hot Tuna. I mean, it's on our first Hot Tuna record. It's got a whole bunch of parts. I just wouldn't think like that. I just know too much stuff now, you know. Uh, we need a bridge. We needed this. We needed that. What kind of core? I just didn't know anything about that back then.
lost its star. Understanding is a virtue hard to come by. You can teach me how to love if you only try. So please don't give up so soon. And it's worth asking about the role of your producer as things developed at Al Schmidt, because I've heard that he had a pivotal role in getting the most out of you in the studio. Al Schmidt, who just passed away recently, was was a wonderful human being and an absolute genius. He had incredibly golden ears and he had the ability to, I mean, he worked with so many of you, I'm sure you've looked at his, his creds, you know, he worked with so many great people. He was able to work with a headstrong band like us, when coming up with great directive ideas and making us think we came up with them ourselves, otherwise we never would have done them. I mean, his sense of artistic dynamic, you know, looking back at it now, I would have never had this conversation back then because I wouldn't have understood it. But looking back at it now, our sound at the time, recorded sound at the time, had so much to do with the way he heard things. And his ability to, like, I was thinking uh, recently about uh, On Volunteers, the airplane song, We Can Be Together. For my guitar part, there's first of all, there's like five or six parts to the song. And I can vaguely remember him directing me, okay, let's take this part, try this, try that, and me getting it. That's fine, move on, you know. I would never have done that myself, you know. He was so important with our sound. And and again, his ability to work with us as as a pretty self-important artist at the time, again, and making us think that we came up with his ideas, priceless. What inspired you in, in that period was really interesting because it seemed like you always had your ear out for something. And uh, Smokey Robinson um, had a, a role in inspiring you for to Turn My Life Down. Yeah. I mean, I'm probably the only one can hear it, but, but the answer is yes. There's, there's that the little chorus that uh, to Smokey Tracks in My Tears somehow resonated with me and came up with the chorus. The chorus. I realize the problem looking, listening to it now, I said, how did that work? But the answer is it did work. Uh, you know, another thing uh, that really influenced me a lot as I was growing as an electric guitar player, I cannot minimize how inspired I was by Cream and what they were doing. And just a quick aside on that, you know, Jimi Hendrix, obviously one of the world's greatest guitar players, but he didn't resonate with me as much as what the, what the guys in Cream did with. I don't think I've heard anybody in an electric format transliterate not talking about the original material, but transliterate acoustic blues without learning the essence of what the acoustic players, what the masters did back in the day into an electric format. In my humble opinion, they did did it better than anybody.
And I've spoken to a, a few musicians who had been at Woodstock, like Rickley of 10 years after, and, and Melanie. Um, it just seems that it was such a, a magical moment that could never be recreated. Did you realise the enormity of it when, when you uh, played? You, you know, obviously looking back on it today, you know, it's, it's an incredible zeitgeist and that's just how it is. I don't think we, I don't think any of us could have realized over the years how iconic it would be because I don't think we thought about things like iconic. However, when you get onto a stage and you see basically half a million people, that, that's a sight I'll never see again. And that's an impre- that's an, inc- that's an incredible moment. And the story of you and, and Jefferson Airplane is really interesting because Woodstock and, and things like Altamont or whatever, they're defining moments in American and music history. Sure. You were there, so you're part of that fabric of right. American life. Yeah, I mean, again, we're some of the most fortunate of musicians in a lot of ways. And, I mean, obviously, you know, it's not... You, you know, magical things come in three. We need to play the three most important. It doesn't work like that, you know. We were just there at the right time, you know. The the San Francisco thing, for whatever reason, whatever made that happen, we got access to, quote-unquote, professional music very quickly. I mean, we got signed. We got together on uh, our first gig with the airplane was on uh, Friday the 13th, August of 1965. And... Within the next couple of months, we were signed to a major label. You know, we were part of the music business. And then just things went along. I mean, who knows why? But again, you know, as a result of like uh, a Monterey Pop, uh, Woodstock and Altamont, you know, we get to have this conversation. But, you know, since we've mentioned Monterey Pop, because I just watched it again recently, in many respects, that's really one of those magical things. Was was the first music festival that I can remember that gave dignity and respect to rock and roll, which was kind of like a redheaded stepchild or something like that. You know, there were folk, there were folk festivals, there were jazz festivals, and and Monterey. You know, if you, if you ever for some reason come to California and go through Monterey and you look at the fe- the, the the grounds, it's like this place is tiny. I mean. And by Woodstock standards, it was tiny, but it was the first thing. I mean, where are you going to see a festival where you see Otis Redding, Jimi Hendrix, us, Janice, Robbie Shankar? I mean, all kinds of jazz cats. And I mean, it's just, it's unbelievable. And I'm not sure that a festival like that would play today because most audiences can't sit through stuff that they're not just there to see. Just small 
Again, reading your autobiography, you also mentioned New Song for the Morning there from that early period of Hot Tuna. You also describe in your book how Hot Tuna seemed to kind of naturally evolve from Jefferson Airplane in that you'd have those acoustic moments in, in Jefferson Airplane. Right. So I don't think Jack, you know, I don't think Jack and I set out to have a spin-off group or whatever you want to call it. But again, the airplane was very inviting to its members to try stuff. And I remember, I could be wrong about this, but I've convinced myself that that the first time I, that Jack and I played a, basically what became the first Hot Tuna record was at the Fillmore East. And I think Paul said, why don't you guys play a song? And we said, okay. And the crowd liked it, you know. So... And that was way before we, we, we didn't have a band name because I don't think we really thought about that. And Grace recently asked me and Jack, why did Jack and I leave the band anyway? And we both had to think about it. And I said, you know, that's a good question because I don't think it wasn't a scripted decision because if it was, we would have stayed together for the farewell tour and made the big bucks. But but for some reason, I think what was happening with the, with the airplane at the time is the magic of family. Because back in those early days, the bands really were more family in the San Francisco thing than some of the other more quote-unquote professional groups. And and everybody was starting to like not be in the studio at the same time and this and that. But before that, even when it wasn't our session, we were always there. And I just think that unwittingly that I just was starting to, to miss that. And Jack and I were starting to do things together. Also, Grace didn't really want to tour that much back then, too. And I love to do that. That's one of the things, you know, yeah, I miss my family, but it's what I do, you know. And and Hot Tuna was just ready to go. So so it was kind of just like a natural thing. And then thanks to the airplane, you know, when Hot Tuna first toured, we had the entree of being Jack and Yorma from the Jefferson Airplane. So we, did, we didn't have to find an audience. We had one ready to listen to us and see if they liked us.
And you talked earlier about the influence of cream and in terms of hot tuna, the, the period of the uh, phosphorescent rat from around 73, 74, tracks like I See the Light. Again, that cream influence, that electric really started to come in. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, there is a magic to playing at that kind of volume and that kind of like bombastic approach to it. And one of the things, well, again, because I do so much teaching and every. All these guys have these little gadgets and stuff that, that you can get that sound at conversational volume. I'll go, yeah, that's great if you live in an apartment and you don't want to get the neighbors mad. But there is a component to rock and roll that in which volume is a part of the music, you know. And like I said, I remember the the first time I saw Cream was at the uh, the old Fillmore, not the Fillmore West, the original Fillmore. And I remember it was just like, wow. And I remember it's really funny at the time. It, it seemed to me that like like Eric was like you know, eight feet tall. I might be a little taller than him, but maybe not. My daughter's almost taller than me now. Who knows? But in any case, it was it was just a magical moment. And, and there's no question that that approach to that stuff, which is if you're an electric guitar player, it's really fun to do. And it's just and we had a lot of fun with it. And even though you were the recorded output was an electric, you actually composed on the acoustic guitar. Is that right? Yeah, for the most part. I mean, every now and then we'll do a jam. We, we would do a jam that would become a song. Uh, a, a lot of these song songs, you know, the, the ones that are lyric and have, have, have like more ballad-like changes, albeit at volume, were written on the acoustic guitar. A, a lot of the songs, obviously, I mean, if you think about a song like hit single number one, fooling around, interesting chords worked let's put some lyrics to it so that happened also but but i would have to say at least maybe three quarters of the song were written on the acoustic guitar
Bringing us up more today, and you were talking about songs, and I think one of your great songs, particularly in m- more recent years, is River of Time. Oh. Can you tell me about the composition of that? Because that's up there in terms of one of your greatest compositions. Uh, oh, thank you uh, very much. Compositions. So, so actually, that actually does have a good story, and I'm sure I blathered about it in the book, but when I was working on River of Time, that was a, the, the album, that was in 2009, and we were recording at, uh, at Levon's place up in Woodstock, New York. And... I was staying at this at a Holiday Inn in Kingston, which is a town about 20 miles away. Anyway, so I'd come up with the name. I'd, I'd had this dream about my, my paternal grandmother, and, and in her dream she talked about floating in a river of time. And, and I remember getting up and actually writing that down, or I would have forgotten it. And my wife said, you got to write a song about that sometime. And I went, sure, sometime I will. Anyway, so I'm getting ready to do this album, and I'd, I'd already decided I'm going to write the song River of Time, and I'm going to call the album River, River of Time. And, and we got down to, it was the night before the last session, and I realized, you know, I haven't written that song yet. And so I had picked up a, picked up a guitar case when I left the studio, and I got back to my room, it's like 2, 3 in the morning, and I look at the guitar case, and it says Collings on it. And I go, hmm, I don't own a, a Collings guitar, but a guitar is a guitar. And I open the case, and it's empty. So now. I'm at the hotel, 20 miles away from the studio, which is locked anyway. I've got to write this song, nothing, you know. So I wrote the song as a poem. And then the next day, while uh, Larry Campbell and the guys were, were setting up for the session, you know, Levon lives in, in this wooded area. I just went out in the woods, and the whole thing came to me. It's not a typical Yorma kind of song. It's one of those things where, you know, it's like, thanks, you gave me a good entree into the song. And that's pretty much how it came about. You know, it was, it's magical on many levels. Now, because I teach some songwriting stuff too, not that you can actually teach songwriting, you can make people write songs. I go, this is not a great way to write a song. There's better ways to write songs than waiting to the last minute and hoping that some inspiration is going to tweak your fancy. It marks our line from birth to death. There is no rhyme, chance to meet along the way. Will we go or will we stay? There is no sound of tolling bells. Our task on earth is living well. I dreamt my grandma held my hand, felt a stranger in this land. Her ancient voice called out to me. You have your choices plain to see It's time to move on down the line We're all here floating in a river of time
shrouded in the fog From the shore, a barking dog We called a time I'd long forgot The flowers there forget me nice Saw away from friends of mine As I rolled down the river of time It might be nice, I could have said Speak to loved ones long since dead Why still flow, they're on the shore And I shan't see them anymore Not on this side, but in dreams And dreams are always what they seem The river flows, it's just begun My daughter follows and my son My time ends, I rest on land And while I slumber, they'll still stand They're a part of that endless line We all still float in a river of time As I float through another day There are no waves to rock my way Water lifts my spirits high And in this moment, you and I Feel the current flow so fine As we float down the river of time And you continue to work with Larry Campbell on uh, Steady As She Goes, which is a, a great hot tuna album from about a decade ago with some key tracks like Angel of Darkness in there. Sure. It's probably worth asking about your relationship with Larry and about how you've worked together. So I met Larry, gosh, it's it's probably pushing 20 years ago now. Larry Campbell is one of these magical people. He He's a great guy. He, he He's personally mastered more instruments than you can imagine. I mean... You know, he plays the Saturn, he plays the electric guitar, obviously, acoustic guitar, pedal steel, dobro, banjo, mandolin. I mean, he, and any one fiddle, any one of these instruments could be his only instrument, you know, but he plays them all. And the other thing is, is that not only does he play all these instruments, but when he works in the studio, not for me to be speaking for how Larry works, but I've worked with him a lot. This is what I see. He figures out, he, he sees music in a three-dimensional landscape that most of us can't do. You know, I kind of like mess with stuff and let it happen. He actually, you know, I think he sees it and he gives substance to it. He's an amazing guy to work with. He never forces his vision on you. He doesn't try to make uh, the musicians he works with sound like him. He's an unintimidating guy to work with who accomplishes intimidating things. Amazing guy, really. And his wife, Teresa, also. And, si- and since you mentioned Angel of Darkness... The little guitar, the, the sort of little guitar kickoff and hook to that, that's Larry playing that because it is so complicated. I'm a fingerstyle guitar player, and I'm here to tell you, Larry, you can learn this. It's easy. That's nonsense. I could kind of learn it, but it wouldn't have sounded like that. So when we did that thing, I said, you got to play that. I'll play. I'll play lead guitar. Steady as she goes was uh, one of the relatively rare examples of a, a studio album for Hot Tuna as opposed to a, a live re- release. Is that because you see Hot Tuna thrives in that live environment in particular? I think in some respects it does. You know, I don't, I don't exist in the rec- in the recording business in, in the same way we did back back when we were stars. You know, where you got to come up with new stuff all the time. So yeah, I think as players we thrive in a live environment. But for example, my, my buddy that uh, is our ranch manager here at the Fur Peace Ranch, John Hurlbut, 
he and I did this album over the uh, over the pandemic thing called The River Flows. And we, we cut like 15 songs in two days live. No, no movie magic. And Justin, again, our drummer and Larry's co-producing buddy, came down and set things up and we just played it. It's been a while since I've done a bricklaying album. At some point, I may write songs, but... You know, I'm just not really living in that environment now. But 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 Hot Tuna, basically, I think when we're good, we're exciting live. Now we're Hot Tuna still owes uh, Compass Records. Re, uh, Compass Records bought Red House, and Compass and they and we still owe them an album. And I wanted to uh, I wanted to do a live record because we're good at that, and when we're good, it's exciting. And I remember one of the one of the guys at the record company that has the power to say yay or nay said nay nobody's buying live albums so well okay what are you gonna do
you mentioned uh, John Hurlbut then, and, and you it might be now two volumes of The River Flows, and right. great tracks on there, and, and uh, covers like The Ballad of Easy Rider there. Uh, what was the process for choosing which songs to uh, remake? Sure. So I've known John for 40 years. We've been friends for a long time. And we, we never really, and, and we, we've messed around over the years. We never did anything seriously before. So before the pandemic, we, we had a little restaurant here where you still have live people come in. And when they'd come in, I tell John, let's go play for the, let's, we'll go play for the lunch crowd, you know. And so we'd go in there and, and I just say, throw something at me. I said, I don't want to just throw something at me. So then as I, as I got to know John musically over the years, we've been friends, we'd never really done that. I realized that he had a huge repertoire of songs that he was completely comfortable with. He, he writes some originals too, but just songs that he loves, which also happen to be songs that I love, but I probably wouldn't have played in my world because I wouldn't have sung those songs. And when the pandemic started happening, we went, you know, we've been playing together for a number of years and we have some stuff we're pretty good at. We should just record these things and see what happens. And it really came out well. Like I said, one of the things that was so inviting for me is that at this point in my life, to go back again to being an accompanist, like I did with the airplane most of the time, and not being the front guy and singing and do all this kind of stuff was so liberating on some levels. And I just had a great time with it. And again, you know, John is a, he's sort of like a mysterious saint in some levels. You know, when 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 my wife first met him years ago, when we first got married, she went, I don't trust him, he's too nice. And I went, no. That's really who he is. So just a pleasure to work with. And actually, we're thinking about doing a volume three now. We've, we've, because we continue to play together and we've got a, we're thinking about a Harry Nielsen song. Oh, wow. <laughs> and stuff like that. Brilliant. We started talking about the range of projects and things that you're doing, especially at Fur Peace Ranch and, and the live shows. I assume that the plan is just to keep on following your own path and seeing where that creative process leads you. Yeah. I, first of all, I've, I say this all the time, and I'm going to say it again. We've really been lucky. I've been lucky, and we've been lucky. Because because our you can make choices, and they can be the wrong choices. But so far, we've been doing pretty well. I think that you know one of the things when I, when I uh, hear a musician that I look for, and this last weekend we had the Delvon Lamar organ trio here, awesome bunch of guys if you get a chance to, to check them out, Delvin Lamar. Anyway, and when I hear guys like that, I, I say, you guys have purity of intent because there's a lot of great musicians out there. You know, the bar's constantly getting raised. There's guys can do things on the guitar that were unthinkable to me 10 years ago, much less a lifetime ago. But there's something, as we all know, there's something that just makes music special. And to me, the, I've chosen to call it purity of intent. And I think that, I don't think we consciously strive for that, but when we're good, we're achieving that. Yama, it's been such a pleasure and privilege to talk with you and cover only a snapshot of your career and and fantastic to know that there's much more in in store. Thank you so much for your time today. Well, listen, the pleasure's been mine. Uh, You know how to get a hold of me. I hope um, it's really funny because, of course, it's been a long time since I've been on an airplane and gone to another country. But I would love to come over and play your way again. It's it's been way too long. Um, for some reason, I do better in Italy than I do in England. Who knows why? But but you know, I need I need to see Ireland or Scotland before it's all over. So I, I'd come over just to help 
just to do that. Anyway, you know where to find me. I look forward to meeting you in person sometime. Stay well. Keep smiling. That will be an even greater pleasure and privilege. So um, fingers crossed we can get you over to the, the UK and Ireland and we, we can see each other in person. So thank you. <laughs> the pleasure would be mine, believe me. Oh, thanks a lot. All right. Take care.
The river flows It flows to the sea Wherever that river flows That's where I want to be flown River flows And you water wash down Take me from this road To some other town. All they wanted was to be free, and in the end, that's how. River flow. If you water wash down, take me from this road to some other town. River flow, flow to the sea. Flow, river flow, flow to the sea. Flow.
other town Thank you for listening to the Strange Brew Podcast. If you do like the show, please consider a small donation to help keep the show archive online. It's 10 years since I started the podcast and hosting fees are increasing over time. All your support keeps the show running and helps me get amazing guests. To support me, just go to thestrangebrew.co.uk where you'll see a donate button on the homepage. Thank you very much. Plus, any reviews on your podcast services help to spread the word too. Thank you.